Welcome to the episode of Politically Entertaining. I'm your host, Fran. Again, Byron, I always say we have a lot of stuff to get to, but it's really true. But before we start getting into all the information, let the listeners know what we do, how we do, and why we do it. We got an exciting interview for you guys later on in the show today. But basically on here, we talk about news and politics. We bring you the big stories. But we also bring you the stories that don't get covered as much in mainstream media. We try to be that news stream that you can come to for those that don't like to watch the MSNBCs and CNNs every day. Come to us once a week. We got you. Uh, we're going to start the show off on a sort of a, a melancholy note. Uh, Tommy Ford, you know him as uh, Tommy from Martin. You ain't got no job. He uh, he passed away last week. Abdominal aneurysm. Aneurysm. I can't talk once again. Uh, only 52 years old. Um he was on one of my favorite shows growing up, Frank. Uh, one of my favorite, favorite episodes was the uh, CD player episode. And one of the reasons was because of Tommy. If you watch that episode when they're all at the table and Martin has the fake dog and stuff, Tommy is sitting the far right. He is like breaking character laughing because that scene is so crazy and hilarious. Just watch him and you'll automatically laugh. He can't even hold his laugh in. And he'll he'll be truly missed. And I hated to hear about that. I, I think when we talked about the best sitcoms on a way earlier episode, Frank, I think you may have named, named Martin or not, but Martin fan and how will you remember Tommy? Yeah, I, I was a Martin fan, not as big a, a Martin fan as you, I don't think, but I, I do real. I did enjoy the show, and I did mention it on a previous episode when I mentioned those Thursday nights on Fox where it used to be uh, Martin Living Single and the New York Undercover. I, always watch those that was like yeah, you're talking was, about you're talking you're talking about like a golden <laughs> era just for you know a couple hours of black tv that was really good um you know two great comedies then come back with that that drama uh that was new york undercover um man it was it was great and so with that being said obviously it's it's too bad you know he was he was very funny i was i mean such a talented cast of, of people together and they all had played their role very well, as you, as you mentioned. But uh, it's just it's unfortunate. He's only 52 years old to, for him to for him to die that way. And um, you know, obviously, what can you say? It's just a tra- it's just a tragic thing that happens. We're all gonna go. We don't know how, but certainly he left a lasting memory with Martin. So maybe uh, if if you're a big fan of his, maybe check out Martin this weekend. You know, I, I'm sure I think I think episodes do run in syndication. I think on TV one as well sometimes so maybe check yep. it out there yep rest in peace and uh thoughts and prayers go out to his family uh let's get into some politics Listening to Politically Entertaining, your Cliff's Notes to American Politics. And now, your host. Thank you for joining Frank us again. You heard Byron. the lady. Another episode of Politically Entertaining with Frank and Byron. You can subscribe on iTunes, um, Stitcher Radio, Podbean, as well as podcasts on Google Play. As we said at the top of the show, we got a lot to get to, so we'll get to it. Starting off with. 
your favorite politician, Frank Donald Trump, who has now said that the shackles are broken They're off. He is he he won't be held back anymore. I don't know what the hell that means, because if if he was held back previously, then we need to all be afraid of what's to come. I don't want to speculate on what is to come, but I'm going to ask uh, our guest today, Lauren Burke, this question. But I want to ask you as well by this whole shackles thing. And you saw how you went at Hillary at the second debate. Uh, as we record this, the, the, the final debate is tomorrow. So by the time you hear this episode, it would have will have taken place. But is this a sign of desperation in, in your opinion, Frank, or do you see this as a winning strategy in his mind? To me, it just looks like a Hail Mary. I mean, we watch a lot of football. We watch a lot of basketball. You know, at times a half-court shot, maybe, uh, you know, a, mir- a miracle attempt at a victory, basically a six-run rally down five in the bottom of the ninth type of with two outs. You know, those are the kind of things that, that uh, analogies that remind me of what he's trying to do. He doesn't have a shot to me, really. I think what, you know, that that the 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 couple of audio tapes about him, uh, obviously the grabbing we we went into that and then also the one about the oh hey there's there's a young girl she might be between eight and ten years old and he's in his, well in his forties when he says this and he says well hey you know what uh, in ten years I'll be dating her and we all do air quotes with dating know what dating means uh, in, in guy terms so I think I think I don't think a lot of people have lost obviously respect. For him, there's people asking back for their for their money back donations, and they're pulling up their offices in different places. Virginia being one, which is a huge battleground state that he really needed to win if he wanted to win the election or at least have a shot. And and there's been speculation that he's not putting money into his campaign like he should have. Uh, Five thirty eight has shown that the number of offices on the ground for Donald Trump is it pales in comparison to the number that Hillary has. So you just really wonder. What is going on? There seems like a lot of rhetoric going on. Also, uh, his son had tweeted out a map uh, to donors, potential donors uh, of Trump winning the election that was based on only men voting. And so there's just a lot of uh, things going on. that's really shady. It looks like it looks like desperation time. People are quitting the campaign. People are on TV saying things that they can't even possibly believe themselves. It's it's just a free for is a free fall. And tomorrow night, the shackles being on, off, whatever that means, it's not going to get any better for him. I don't, I don't know what he could potentially play or say to to help himself at this point. Yeah, we should see how it plays out. Uh, I'm just really curious to see what he's going to be like at this final debate. Uh, quick news nugget before we get to the next uh, topic: the Wells Fargo CEO has resigned. Uh, now we're not getting a nice hundred million dollar plus uh, parting ways check but uh, a few episodes ago we had a Razio on for the second time and he was telling us about the whole Wells Fargo shenanigans that they were pulling and it looks like the CEO is out and uh, we'll see what else happens with that uh, Tamika Cross excuse me let me give his sister her proper respect Dr. Tamika Cross was on a flight uh, I believe to Detroit on, on a Delta flight and one of the passengers on the flight had an emergency, a medical emergency. She is a doctor, so she got up to help. She was uh, stopped by this Delta attendant, this flight attendant. Uh, Tamika Cross is an OBGYN at uh, the Lyndon B. Johnson Hospital in Houston. So she got up to help 
And this this attendant was so condescending. She used quote, "Oh no, sweetie, we we need a uh, a real doctor. Put your hand down." And by the way, is sweetie ever used in a in a good way? It's always used in a shady, condescending way. No, sweetie, put your hand down. We need an actual physician. And you know, Tamika went on to go on and show her credentials. The lady asked for her credentials. She asked, uh, "Why were you in Detroit? What kind of doctor are you?" Where do you work? While this man is having this, this emergency going on, uh, uh, another doctor happened to be on the flight, a white man, and he allowed to help the, man, the gentleman. And Tamika was denied, discriminated against. And they tried to make it up to her. The flight attendant offered her sky miles. She declined because she did not want this attendant to get away with it. So she's been in contact with Delta. They're investigating. And she hopes to get not only her sky miles, but she'd like to see this flight attendant punished. Frank, what do you think would be the proper punishment for this obvious discrimination and any other thoughts that you want to share on what happened here? I mean, wow, this hits really close to home. I actually do have a sister who is also an OBGYN, so I definitely understand the the feeling of frustration that Tamika, Dr. Tamika Cross, must have felt. I also have another friend uh, on Facebook who's also a doctor, and she's also dealt with similar uh, situations, not necessarily on an airplane, but in other situations. So it's a very interesting uh, thing how people look at, you know, when they say a doctor, what their perception of a doctor is. And it, it plays into, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go off course a little bit here, as you know, I generally do. It plays into the idea of implicit bias. And it's something that we keep denying. We're saying oh, it was post-racial. But, you know, if Tamika Cross had been, you know, Thomas Corsair, uh, you know, a white guy, as he was, there was a white guy, I don't know his name, by the way, but I'm saying a white guy got up and, and apparently his credentials weren't asked for and he was able to help the person. Now, what's, what's the main thing about the story is that the gentleman who was having the problem is okay. So that's very important that he's good, he's okay. So that's good. Now, what would have really been tragic is if she had been the only doctor on the plane and he had been denied medical care because this woman wanted to shake her down. And in my opinion, the flight attendant should be suspended i you know to say she should be terminated i think it's tough to say let's take somebody's job but certainly she should be suspended for a, a decent amount of time and 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 made to made to take training to understand that hey you need to not there, there needs to be more training for people for bias I, I think there's something in us all we all have our own biases i i know i do and i think it's important to understand that that they can affect things i mean this man's life could have been lost if it had been a serious condition because woman decided that this black lady was not a doctor i mean how crazy is that that she would take somebody's life into their hands i mean as if people don't want to volunteer to be a doctor i mean it's, that's kind of a crazy thing to do you know especially in a pressure situation when somebody's having a medical emergency can you imagine we're neither one of us were doctors byron can you imagine one of us raising our hand being like yeah i'm a doctor i mean that would just be so silly um to, to do so obviously i think the flight attendant should be suspended uh, she should be made to take sensitivity training and i hope that this is an example to all flight attendants and people out there that you know you don't know what your the help is going to look like that comes to you and you need not discriminate against it and i think i think that's the main thing we need to understand is that the idea that that something looks like something is is that's that's the main thing that's wrong with america now that we think that something looks like that we think a, a thug looks like a black man in a hoodie and we think a doctor looks like a white man in a lab coat that's just that's just messed up 
And the uh, the doctor that wound up helping the man, he didn't come right away. They actually had to ask for a doctor twice. And that's why Tamika rose her hand. And just just that quote, oh, no, sweetie, put your hand down. That, that's, man, that's so demeaning to talk to an adult, let alone a doctor like that. And like you say, I'm glad the man is, uh, you know, he, he's he's well or whatever. But that's that's just a crazy story. And I'll even go a step further, too, Frank. Yes, the uh, flight attendants should go through some type, but I think all the flight attendants on Delta should, because you know, nine times out of ten, in every workplace, every employee is friends with at least one or two other people. So I know she shared these type of thoughts before with other flight attendants that she worked with. So if I was Delta, just to you know cover everything, have everyone go through it and remind them that you just don't based off race, sex, or in this case, age, because I think. Uh, Dr. Cross is fairly, I guess, young looking. And that also led to her not, quote, looking like a doctor. We have a brilliant guest for you guys today. Lauren Victoria Burke will be joining us uh, from NBC Black. She's the editing manager of Politic 365. You also can catch her on One Now with Roland Martin on TV One. That airs every day at 7 a.m. Eastern. Uh, she's on here. And we'll also discuss the uh the much-talked-about documentary on Netflix, The 13th, in reference to the 13th Amendment. Uh, but first, I, I touched on him last episode, former President Bill Clinton. Uh, as I mentioned him, I still, you know, he was always looked at as an asset. And now, in my opinion, Frank, he's become quite the liability. And not just like this year, but even in 08 when Hillary ran, you know, he said certain things like, dismiss Obama's uh, primary victory in South Carolina by saying, well, you know, Jesse Jackson won it too, big deal. And he recently criticized Obamacare, which, dude, your wife is running like pretty much as a third term President Obama. You can't criticize his major policy and call it something crazy. And then his staff and and everybody around him has to go and, and, and rephrase what he, quote, really meant. How did this man become such a liability, Frank? If you look at the second debate that we talked about earlier, Trump was hitting Hillary all day with the indiscretions of Bill Clinton. And I know a part of her has to be thinking, if you had to just, you know, acted right, I wouldn't even have to put up with this. But she's paying for his sins and he's become he, he was supposed to be like this huge, huge asset. And now he's a liability. So if she wins this presidency, which it looks like, should he be a concern as far as I guess he'll be the first gentleman they'll call him? Should she be concerned with things that he may say or do while she's trying to run the country? That's, I mean, uh, should she be concerned from a uh, maybe from a personal standpoint? I don't think that he I don't think assuming she wins the election. You know, we've never seen a man. I mean, men are sometimes very. Uh, he's, you know, he's, he's being seems like he's being supportive, but you never know what it's like. You never know what it's like behind the scenes. We don't know how their marriage really is. If they really even have a marriage, it could just be for convenience. I mean, I've had discussions before. It says that you know their marriage bed is probably pretty cold, and and Hillary really wanted the presidency, and she knew that divorcing Bill would pretty much eliminate her from being the president. So. She stayed with him. And so I don't know that they have a great relationship. So from that standpoint, I just think that, you know, he needs he's going to do whatever he does. He's going to go out and he's going to make some good speeches and help her get some some different, uh, you know, voters in and stuff like that. I don't think it's anything major. I think that 
you may see some sniping because maybe he may feel a little bit jealous or he may feel like he he's part of it. Like, you know, how you ever seen somebody achieve success and you felt like you were part of it and you maybe acted salty. I kind of feel like in some ways he's doing that. Like he's like, hey, if it wasn't for me and, you know, he he, he probably is pretty arrogant in that regard. So I don't think he's going to undermine her her campaign or anything or her uh whatever, however long she is the president. But I do think that you'll see some random uh sniping that you would be like what is going on here and he might just be being a little bit petty but i don't think it's going to affect her uh anything she's going to do because hillary's pretty much one of the most uh headstrong people that you'll probably ever see so she's going to get whatever she's going to get done it's Luke Gingrich, former Speaker of the House, has routinely referred to Bill Clinton as the smartest politician he's ever known. So just for me personally, it's just so amazing to see this great asset become somewhat of a, a liability. Uh, but we'll we'll see how what happens, like I say, if she wins the presidency and, and how he fits into all that. Um, we have, like I said earlier in the show, we're going to be talking to Lauren Burke. So let's get into the interview and discuss it on the other side. Listen up. It's time for a politically entertaining exclusive interview. Join us today on Politically Entertaining. She is a writer and contributor for NBC Black. She's also the managing editor of Politic 365. You can catch her almost on a weekly, almost daily basis on TV One, Roland Martin's News One Now. And you can also catch on MSNBC from time to time. Lauren Burke, I want to thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for having me. <laughs> All right. Well, I wanted to uh, jump right into it. You know, Trump has been the talk of this election, and he has recently said that the, quote, shackles have come off. And I just wanted to ask, in your, in your opinion, is that, do you think that, does he really believe that that's a winning strategy or I'm kind of thinking that he's probably preparing for something after the election. Like he wants to throw his base as much red meat as possible, shore them up. And then after the election, I don't know specifically what he would do other than be a nuisance to uh, clean the entire four <laughs> years. But do you think he think this is a, a winning strategy or is there something else at play here? Um, I actually, believe it or not, do think that he thinks it is a winning strategy. I know that's hard to believe given uh, what we've been watching in this extraordinary political season. But I think, you know, Donald Trump has shown himself to be, uh, you know, a narcissist and, and sort of delusional about reality. And so it's it's really in keeping with what we've seen over the last year. I mean, when he announced in July 2015, we saw some delusion right off the bat. Uh, I mean, this is a guy who hasn't really had to live the type of life that most Americans have to live in this country. You know, he was born on third base. And when your father hands you $14 million uh, at a young age and you live in sort of a cloistered environment that he grew up in, it's not surprising that, that you know, he has sort of a disconnection with, uh, with basic reality. And, of course, the political reality right now is that in all probability we're looking at a landslide situation for Hillary Clinton, certainly with the Electoral College, maybe even with the popular vote. We uh, you know it's one thing to get into the conversation about the various demographics in the country, African-Americans, Hispanics, etc. But when you tick off uh, women across the board, and we're talking 
not just one segment of the female population, but everyone young, old, etc. That is a Correct. really dangerous game in politics, and that's a dangerous game that he's playing. So I, I don't know that he's playing for after the election. I think that he's actually thinking, as hard as, as it is to believe, I think he's actually thinking that he can win. That's that's. That's that's amazing. Um, Something I noticed during the uh, the second debate with Hillary, it seems like there are two things that he brought up that she refuses to respond to or or just haven't taken the opportunity to respond to. One is he went after her heart about her husband's, uh, you know, transgressions in the past, his infidelity and and how he treated women. Uh, But she could hit her back with the things like when he when Bill Clinton was going through those things. Trump came out and defended him and said some of the same things about those women that Hillary that he's accusing Hillary of saying. But she didn't she didn't bring that part up. And he keeps bringing up the whole super predator comment by her. I don't know why she won't act with this. What he said about the Central Park Five and how he's dumped down on them as recent as last week, saying that he still thinks he's right, even though those men have been exonerated and owed money by the city. Uh, do you have any insight to why it seems like she won't go, you know, address those two issues or is she not prepared to, to bring those up? Well, uh, number one, uh, the Democrats in just in general terms here are, are not good at marketing and PR. <laughs> I mean, just as a party, as a general uh, agree, Republicans are just better at that. Right. So you have that. Then you have the fact that, you know, you can just watch this by looking. I don't have any inside information, although we from time to time do sit down with some of the principals who run her communication shop. Uh, but you can by watching. You don't need to be any political expert to see that she's been overcoached to effectively sit back and let him make a fool of himself. You can see that their entire campaign strategy is basically, uh, okay, let him make a fool of himself and people will vote for me because they think he's a fool. There was uh, an ad that came out from Hillary's super PAC called Enough. The entire ad is just clips of Donald Trump running his mouth and a black guy narrating it. It was geared to get black voters, effectively an ad geared to tick off black voters about the birtherism situation and some of the things Donald Trump Trump has said. It's not an ad stating, okay, this is what Hillary Clinton is going to do for, you know, uh, the black community. It's an ad that is trying to get black voters to vote for her because they're against him. And that debate strategy is in keeping with that. So it's basically, you know, her standing there, he says stuff, and then she, you know, she's high and he's low, and that's where this is. Now, I personally don't think it's a particularly good strategy um, because, you know, she left a lot on the table in terms of some of that he said, and she just sort of left it out there. And it wasn't just the super predator thing and the Central Park Five. Uh, obviously on the infidelity issue, that's a little bit more complicated. She's never been known as a person to talk publicly about her private situation with her husband. And when we go back to Arkansas, we saw that Frontline just did a really good documentary on both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, and they went into that, the fact that she does not publicly address these things. I think it's easier said than done in terms of, you know, I can sit here and say, well, if I was standing there, I would have said this and that. But when your husband is sitting in the front row next to your daughter, on national TV and 60 million people are watching, you're probably not going to be into the idea of talking about some of the most private, you know, parts of your relationship with your husband of over 30 years. So it's, it's, it's easy to say it, you know, when you are not that person, but as, as, you know, as, as big as these people might be and as distant as, as they might be, um, uh, these people are human beings. I covered Hillary Clinton in 2000 when she ran for the Senate. 
I'm from New York. I remember Hillary Clinton when she was on, you know, in the Senate. Uh, she, uh, you know, I actually had sort of a little bit of a connection with her <laughs> to some extent because, like most of the senators, you start to get to know them after a while when they're around, even if they're only around for maybe one term. Uh, and she always struck me as somebody who is not that the person who's going to, you know, tell you everything. And I, I don't know that she should be required to do that as a public official. Uh, that's a really difficult thing to sort of bring up. On super predators, she's a, a, a pat answer for that. Um, she should have hit him. I think she should have been on the, you know, obviously she should have been on the offensive more, not only with that, but so many other things. But that's a touchy subject as well, <laughs> you know, because she did say it. The only reason she actually apologized for it this year is because a Black Lives Matter activist yeah. outed her at a, at a, at a, you know, fundraiser in South Carolina, barrister. And uh, even that was kind of under the table. They talked to Jonathan Capehart, and John Capehart put the apology out. I mean, that wasn't even done on camera. So it's touchy because it goes back to her husband's policy, and she has been very careful to tiptoe around, ticking him off on the issues like the Clinton crime bill, et cetera, and so on. So that's where that's at. I'm going to jump in here, Lauren. Um, so one of the things we talk about on our show a lot is uh, local politics and vocally. Now, with even even though it looks like now Trump is, is struggling and he probably is going to lose potentially in a landslide, uh, in your estimation, the alt-right movement that now seems to be alive and well uh, with the white nationalist you know, rhetoric behind it, do you feel like now you're going to see a lot more candidates uh, running kind of under that ideology, uh, maybe not with the same bold rhetoric as Trump, but certainly with the same uh, nefarious mindset? Well, actually, we've actually already seen that. I mean, this is the Trump thing is a manifestation of the Tea Party. And that all started in 2010 when we had this situation where these effectively uh, the right wing of the Republican Party showed up in an attempt to obstruct the first black president of the United States. That effort started on the literally on the night of the president's first inauguration, which was January 20, 2009. Uh, and that effort was a plan, a very, uh, a very deliberate plan to block everything that this president planned to do. He thinks that, you know, they sometimes agree on that. Some of that kind of fell off a little bit when they did the trade bill, et cetera. There's been some things that they have actually passed, very few things. But that plan was put into place effectively, you know, planned by Newt Gingrich, Paul Ryan, et cetera, and so on. So that Tea Party effort that we saw uh, is really a road to nowhere. I mean, you see the people who come into Congress. I don't need to tell you. Uh, you know, when you you have people walking through the door like Tom Cotton and Ted Cruz who are there for absolutely no other reason than to run their mouth, uh, make 174000 and fly back and forth to their district on the tax time with absolutely nothing to show for it, that was the plan. You know, there is no – it's a road to nowhere. So the so-called alt, alt-right, the so-called Tea Party, you know, when we examine American history, uh, it doesn't take a whole lot to – to observe the fact that when African Americans get something uh, historically, there is always pushback. Uh, we saw it after the Emancipation Proclamation. We saw it after the Civil Rights Bill was passed and the Voting Rights Act. We've seen it every single time. You know, there's always a big pushback after after African Americans get something. Uh, in the perception of a certain segment of the Republican Party uh, and a certain segment of this country. Us getting something was, of course, the election of Barack Obama, and now the pack and the pendulum is swinging back the other way. You know, these things like Breitbart, the Tea Party, 
you know, daily caller. All of those things happened after the election of Barack Obama. The voter ID laws, all of that happened after the election of Barack Obama. And, of course, given the demographics in the country, the changing demographics, which are obvious, we African-Americans are actually not the biggest minority group, obviously, uh, Latinos are. People see that. They know that they know what power is. They know how power is, is shaped and formed. And so uh, this, quote, so-called alt-right, which is just another way of saying, uh, you know, white white supremacy is, um, you know, is is really sort of, I think, scared of the idea that they may take over. Of course, you know, individuals and, and movements are a lot more complicated than that. People tend to forget the fact, of course, that Barack Obama is actually black and white. And he's turned out to be a little less, much less progressive than people thought he would be. So Donald Trump is the monster that they created. As you can see, Donald Trump has no ideology, really, no set ideology, has no policy. He is a manifestation of the Tea Party. Uh, a lot of these Tea Party members you see in the House and Senate, it's not that they don't have an ideology, but they have no plan to do anything other than obstruct the president. That's it. Many of them have left. Many of them walked out the door. A few are starting to lose. Um, and I do think certainly that there's something to be said for the frustration that people have. You know, you can't have uh, 40-something million people in poverty in the United States and not have frustration. At the same time, you know, we had that when Bush was here, and you didn't see all this excitement. Um, Donald Trump is really, I think, the last desperate act of the Southern strategy. Um, and until the Republican Party lets go of this notion that they can separate people and, uh, you know, make poor whites believe that they have nothing in common with poor blacks and all that, and that is effectively Southern strategy politics, they are go they're going to lose on the national level again and again and again. What changes a political party is losing. That's the only thing. You know, we can talk about stuff. There can be books that come out. What will actually change them is losing over and over again. Everybody thought it would happen after Mitt Romney. It didn't. This is probably going to be it. So that's a great point you made about them losing, losing over and over again. And we've had... Uh, like Senator Tim Scott on our show, who obviously he's a black Republican senator, which is, you know, kind of a big deal, because generally, as you mentioned, a lot of black people, Southern strategy have been pushed away from, say, the Republican Party uh, since, you know, obviously civil rights. So going forward, do you think that there is going to be another party that could be formed that black people could maybe gravitate towards? Because right now, I think a lot of Black people with any kind of social conscience, they are feeling like, OK, well, either they're not voting or they're voting potentially Democrat. Maybe some are voting for Gary Johnson or Jill Stein. I've seen that. But but a lot of I have seen many African-Americans are not voting for Trump for obvious reasons. And so just going forward after 2020 with the Republican Party, as you said, if they continue on a southern strategy, they almost force. I mean, you know, I think African-Americans, we'd like more of a voice, more of a choice. But is, is there no way forward, really, uh, at the, you know, say, presidential level based on the way the parties are set up? Or do you see something else emerging that will give uh, more options in the future? Uh, well, the problem with black politics and black power in the United States right now is that black advocacy almost never has a specific ask uh, like other groups do. And if you look at advocacy, if you, you look at like the most effective, whether we agree with them or not, the most effective lobbying groups like the NRA or, or APAC, they have like one thing that they hammer over and over again. You know, a lot of people to me, what's well, the money, you know, uh, NRA has money. No, NRA has focus and they push it and they connect that policy focus to votes. So the answer to me is not a third political party. The answer is to figure out what works in political advocacy. What doesn't work 
is kissing up to the president of the United States because he happens to be the same skin color as you and not pushing him. Because it really doesn't matter whether it's George Bush, Bill Clinton, or Barack Obama. You've got to push whoever's in power. And you've got to know what you want. You've got to ask for it. That's true. That's true in life. And if you don't do that, it's not going to happen. And what we see with particularly our so-called professional civil rights organizations, the NAACP, uh, the Urban League, you know, they're corporate-funded, corporate-driven, and they're scared to stand up to anybody. What we saw with Black Lives Matter was they didn't care. They got out in the streets. They made a demand. They didn't care who they pissed, and that was it. And you saw that work for the first time in American history. We got into a very deep discussion with these candidates about police brutality. That problem has been around forever for African Americans. I mean, we can obviously go to YouTube right now, put in Malcolm X's name, police brutality, and Malcolm X is standing there talking about police brutality 50 years ago. So, I mean, they got that on the agenda through pushing. So it's not the third political party, pushing your issues, figuring out what you want and pushing it. And until we get there, you know, what black people are told in politics is to vote. That's what we're told, vote. What Emily's List and these groups, you know, Human Rights Campaign, what they tell their people is, they don't just say vote. They say don't vote for this person unless they do this. So La Raza and I could just name any group on the right or left. At no point do they just tell their their folks that they're that they're you know having uh, an advocacy day with oh just go vote. <laughs> I mean they they say look if this person is not for us on this issue we're voting against. Now is it more complicated for African Americans? Of course it is. We have a broader sweep of issues. Because our history is completely different than everybody else's, no matter what anybody says. Um, and I know other ethnic groups, they'll say, well, we had a tough time when we came here. Okay, you did not have a tough time for 400 years. You were not forced here in chains. It's just totally different. And, of course, the other big difference, under the law, African Americans are treated that way. It wasn't somebody's opinion. I mean, when you have stuff written into the law, that's a lot different than somebody being ticked off for, you know, a 20-year period. So... You know, the idea that we, the idea that we need some sort of political force or some different party or some different person to come along, you know, we have the vote strength to get what we want. We just need it to be organized and we need to decide what we want and demand it. And then we have to put a threat onto that demand, just like these other groups do. You know, NRA, you don't vote our way, you don't do our thing. We blast an email to millions of people telling you that, you know, telling them that you didn't vote our way. So there's a, there's a threat. There's a, if you don't do this, this will happen. Uh, we don't have that. There's no political group, advocacy group for African Americans that has that. The closest we get is color of change. Color of change, blast stuff out. They, they, you know, say, hey, you know, we're calling you out on this. They will embarrass people. They're it. And the NAACP doesn't do that. And I, I realize, you know, I think the other thing that's crippling us too is the 5013C model which thankfully Black Lives Matter is rejecting <laughs> because, like, you know, the 5013C effectively means you can't get involved in politics. Uh, obviously, the civil rights movement came through the church. They're not supposed to get involved in politics. So, you know, in a direct way, meaning, you know, endorsing ca candidates. So it, to me, it isn't the third-party model. It's the fact that, uh, you know, we do need a new generation of politicians to come along, and I'm not an ageist. I'm, I, you know, we do have older politicians who are just fine. In fact, we have older politicians who are than the younger ones. But the Democratic Party, in my view, kind of made a little bit of a mistake here with their nomination. I mean, Hillary Clinton is not a particularly good candidate, and they need their next generation to step up. And the people who are between the ages of, you know, 40 and 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 50 and late 50s you know so that's that was another sort of mistake but 
But as far as advocacy and, and the way POPs works, unfortunately right now for black advocacy, we are not playing the game as well as everybody else. That that answer on how um, other groups tell their people to do more than vote, that was that was excellent. Uh, we're, we're talking to Lauren Burke, uh, a managing editor for Politic365.com. And like I said earlier, you can catch her frequently on uh, TV One, News One Now with Roland Martin. I want to get you out of here with this uh, final question, Lauren. Uh, I was reading one of your articles, I, I believe it was your latest article on Politic 365, where you were talking about Katrina Pearson, who is, she's something else. Um, she, blamed, yeah. she she was blaming hip-hop for the lewd comments that Trump uh, said back in 2005. She's also the same person that uh, said something to the effect of, so what, that they're Muslim, when they were talking about the Muslim ban. And even in 2012, I think she referred to Obama and Mitt Romney as like half breeds or something like that. Yet and still, mm. there's this false equivalency with her and and Hillary Clinton. Well, not with her, I'm sorry, with Trump and with Hillary Clinton as far as how they're both equal. I've seen things where they're both equally racist. They're both equally bad for the country. You look at people like Katrina Pearson and some of the other people that Trump has surrounded himself with, combined with the things that Trump has said. How can that that notion exist? Why is there so much uh, weight given to the fact that Trump and Hillary are pretty much equally bad? I, like we agree that Hillary is not a great candidate, but how is she painting the same light as Trump with so many people? In your opinion? Well, they don't really have any other argument. When your candidate shows up on a tape saying what Donald Trump said in 2005 Access Hollywood tape, and this is, this is even this is leaving out all the other things that we know and that we've heard and have been documented, what can you say? Now, you would think that Katrina Pearson would have been bright enough to just say, look, my candidate apologized the other day at this debate. Uh, let's move on and just kind of repeat that. Instead, she wants to play this dance of blaming, quote, something. Um, they have, you know, th their candidate is um, somebody who is completely devoid of any qualification for the office. I mean, he isn't some, like something that we've never seen before uh, for a major party. You know, for a major party to nominate somebody like this is very hard to message that person. You know, Kellyanne Conway was on today, and she, I mean, there, there, were an, there was an interview on a few hours ago. You can see it in, in her face. You can see it in her inflection that she doesn't believe what's coming out of her mouth. She's halting. She's she's not delivering, you know, her lines because she knows she doesn't believe in what she's saying. Right. And I need to tell you, it's pretty obvious. A lot of these consultants that lock onto these campaigns are making money, and that's it. I mean, if you're gonna sit there for, you know, most people, okay, I'll sit here and and I'll I'll grin and bear it for 27 days because I'm making 25,000 a month. Okay, you know, I mean, so that's what this is. Avarosa Manigault is a Democrat. I mean, I, I, about a year and a half ago, I went to a reception, a Ready for Hillary reception. She was sitting on in the middle of the room. Wow. How she suddenly now is working for a Republican campaign. Everybody knows she's a Democrat. It's not like this is a, you know, huge, you know, uh, breaking news. And, and she is, she's on the campaign doing what exactly? I mean, so it is to get paid for a lot of these people. And if you're a black Republican, I mean, that's like being... Uh, a left-handed pitcher that can throw a, a 99-mile-an-hour fastball. You know, you will get hired by somebody. You see it in football, right? 
you see people who have no business playing quarterback, but there's not a lot of good quarterbacks in the NFL. So you get, you know, you get somebody out there that that really shouldn't be out there, but there they are making, you know, seventeen million dollars. And that's what it is in politics when it comes particularly to black Republicans. And so that's some of what you're seeing. Um, <laughs> there, there's just kind of a. Um, they, they have nothing to say. They're busted. And then also, too, there's no organization within the campaign. So they're not really sitting down and meeting and saying, okay, this is what we're going to say, surrogates, as a group. You remember a few months ago, one even months ago, it was like a month ago, you know, we saw various black pastors running around. Mark Burns, uh, the dude from uh, Ohio's name I can't even remember. Uh, you know, they're out running around saying whatever they want. I mean, you could tell there was no direction. You could tell they got no talking points. The way these campaigns work is, you know, everybody gets sent emailed talking points. This is what we're all supposed to say. I mean, I don't know what the Trump team is doing, but then again, you know, when your candidate is completely undisciplined from day to day, you have no idea what he's going to say. It's very hard to adjust and figure out what you're going to say. You see, Kellyanne Conway was in the witness protection program for four days, <laughs> three days after that tape came out because she didn't know what to say. And she's the main person who's supposed to be on TV. So, you know, they're busted. And, and Katrina Pearson, I'll admit when she first started, right up until the time she started saying dumb stuff about three or four months ago, I thought she was actually doing a fairly good job with a really difficult candidate. Now she's coming so off the rails. Because now, you know, yeah, I thought she was doing a pretty good job. Uh, now, you know, these interviewers have lost their patience. We're at the end of the day. The anchors are starting to get annoyed. You know, Jake Tapper and them, it's like a jailbreak now. They're, they're like, I'm not taking this. A few, few weeks ago, Chris Matthews busted Rudy Giuliani on national TV on the birth of thing. I mean, just busted him. Wrote his ass for like, you know, five minutes straight talking about, no, you're going to tell me whether or not you think the president was born in the United States. Now, that didn't happen before. They kind of let these people come on the air say whatever, and then walk away. That game is over because now everybody sees that what they were doing, which I don't know why it took so long for us to figure this out in the media, but somehow it did. Um, you know, what they were doing is they're coming on the air, saying a bunch of lies, and walking off. And that's a victory for you if, if you know, a million people are watching and there's no correction. And that's what Trump did during the debate, by the way. you got 60 million people watching. You'll say anything. Oh, she should be in jail for her email. There's no detail. You know, you just say it. And 30 million people believe it, <laughs> you kind of won that, you know. That's right. And so you got to be careful in the media, and Hillary Clinton has to be careful to jump up and correct it hard and not just say, oh, yeah, there's fact checkers. No, you got to correct that hard because the correction comes out later and only maybe 10 million people see the correction. So I, I think that, you know, the trusts are just, well, what do you do? But if you're getting paid what they're getting paid, You'll probably say to yourself, "Okay, I got 27 days of this. I can, I can grin and bear." But there's a lot of hucksters involved. There's a lot of people who are just on the payroll to be on the payroll. And um, when it comes uh, the diversity piece in the Trump campaign, there's some real fakery going on. And they, 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 you know, Republicans right now, again, they're still in the Southern strategy mode. It's like they think they could just put a black face out there, and that's all they need to do. You just, you know, if you got black skin, the pulse beat. We'll put you up there on TV. You'll sit behind Donald Trump, and, and that's that. But obviously there's more to, to it than that. People are more complicated than that. Our issues are, are you know, African-American issues are more complicated than that. It, it, can't, it doesn't work. And you'll see, you'll, you'll see on November 8th, on Election Day, that it, it, it in fact, did not work. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it, it's coming. It's coming. <laughs> we definitely shall see. Uh, Lauren Victoria Burke. Uh, again, the managing editor of Politic365.com. 
You can also visit blurb.com where she has a book, Birth of a Statement, Statesman, 475 pictures of now President Obama uh, that pretty much uh, they, they follow him from 2005 to 2009 up to he's sworn in as president, I believe. And uh, you can check that out on that website and learn more about Lauren as well. Also, you can follow her on Twitter at LV Burke, LV Burke, which stands for Lauren Victoria Burke on Twitter. We want to thank you for coming on, man. We really appreciate it. Thanks a lot anytime, and I'll see you. <laughs> I'll see you around the hill, as you know. Thanks a lot. Will do. We hope to have you back again. Have a good one. want to thank Lauren Burke again for joining us on Politically Entertaining. A, f- a lot of her answers really stood out to me, Frank, but I'll just try to pick three key points that stood out to me. First off, if I had to describe Lauren, she's very unafraid. If you listen to those answers, she said a lot of things that you won't hear these uh, major network anchors say. She referred, she called the alt-right that Frank called it. She just, she went on and called it what it is, white supremacy. Uh, she was saying how, I love how she said change comes from losing. I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. And the and the, the most important, the best thing I loved about her answer was how she said that groups don't, no other group tells their people to just go vote like like black people are told to just go vote. Vote or die. You know, P. Diddy had the whole campaign. We're just told to vote. She's saying we need to put some action behind that and start demanding certain things of these candidates or get them out of here. Um what are some of the things that you picked up from her answers in this interview? I mean, I think what she brought up about the vote, that really stood out to me. And that also made me go back and think about some of the things that we say on our show. Because, you know, one thing we do on this show is we always try to bring you different perspectives from different people. And we're also learning, too. And so when sometimes at the end of the show, I think I might say, hey, make sure you're voting. But, I, you know, I also want to make sure I add, make sure you know who you're voting for, why you're voting as well. And also, you know, I think some of the movements that she mentioned, you know, she talked about color of change being one of the only few that actually has teeth. And I think that you would look at something like what Sean King is doing with the uh, InjusticeBoycott.com could also have a big impact if, if people really get behind it. And I think that that's what we have to understand as uh, African-Americans, the voting block is to get our voices heard we have to find a way to make a stand that's going to get heard and it can't just be as she mentioned at the ballot box voting you know for some candidate you know every four years and then you're kind of not getting anything you have to find uh the issues you want and and press onto and be more focused she mentioned the nra being focused which is certainly something that you know sometimes as african americans we always we always divided about what we think is thing okay we say well you know even even if something as simple as when you see black people posting on facebook and you may say hey man police brutality's gotta stop here's what we gotta do and then people come in and say what we gotta do is we gotta clean up our own communities again divided because you're not it's like yes black on black crime is an is an issue but it's no big an issue no bigger an issue than say white on white crime but so every time we have you try to unite united front against police brutality there'd be plenty of african americans who were like well we we need to clean up our own laundry first or whatever that means. And that causes division so to be able to stand uh, together with certain causes and not find another reason why not, not try to find another um, reason why something is important, you know, and I want to make this point. I hadn't put this on the sheet or anything. And so I'm just going to bring it out of left field. I haven't read the interview, but I did hear that David West, if NBA veteran, I think he's 13, 14 year veteran. He's currently playing on the Warriors. Um, he played on the Spurs last year. He played on the Pacers many years before that and Charlotte before that. Now, he, in response, 
he's done an interview with undefeated Mark J. Spears. And like I said, I have not read the interview, so I could be off, but I'm just going to take a chance here and make this because I think it makes my point is that he basically came out and told Mark Spears, I've been protesting all this time. I protested all last year as far as talking about the national anthem protest. And he's like, you know, there's all kind of problems going on. There's, you know, our babies aren't living as long. Our mortality rate is less. But I was like, okay, no offense to David West. And I'm not saying that he's not an activist or whatever it is, but it's like, okay, you're protesting and nobody knows about it. And that's like, that's kind of what people want. It's like Colin Kaepernick, people know. And so it's almost like he almost was throwing shade at Colin Kaepernick saying, well, he's just a Johnny come lately protesting. I've been protesting all this time. And here's what I'm protesting about. There's there's other issues too. I mean, there's nothing wrong with what, what David West said, but to, to throw shade at Colin Kaepernick's movement, which is aimed at correcting police brutality is exactly the problem that we're having. And that's exactly why we have to be focused on one on certain issues as a group as a voting block and get changed we can't, it can't just be a vacillating target like oh yeah today it's loose brutality but really it's you know poverty and no it's really violence in our own neighborhoods it's like find it find this topic and let's stick with it police brutality is actually getting traction and moving thanks to black lives matter and colin kaepernick and other things like that you're actually seeing some traction with that so i just think understanding that and how to stay focused on an issue instead of just kind of letting it die out is really really important i think that is something that i hadn't thought of and i think you know really really gave me a great perspective after hearing her interview to add to what Lauren and Frank just said, uh, Frank said, you know, know who you're voting for. I'll, I'll go a step further and say after you vote for who you vote, follow them. You know, make sure they do the things that you expect them to do. Don't just vote and then go about your everyday lives. Now, we're not saying become political junkies like Frank and I, but follow them somewhat. Listen to shows like this, this one preferably, and, and make sure that they're doing the things that they promise to do. And if they don't. Like Laura said, like Frank has suggested, like vote them out. So pay attention to that. Follow them. Um, the 13th, a documentary on uh, Netflix, as I mentioned at the top of the show, we will discuss in a moment. And one last thing, Frank, you just mentioned Colin Kaepernick in your answer. He's catching it from all sides. Ruth Bader Ginsburg chimed in and he had a nice response to her. We'll uh, we'll actually post that on our Facebook page, Political Entertainment, if you haven't already checked that out. His response to the Supreme Court justice on him, on her calling him, I think she called him uh, idiotic or arrogant or something stupid. So he had a, a pretty well articulated response to that. Trump and Pence, um, the Republican presidential and vice presidential candidates. When Trump first picked Mike Pence. On an episode, the episode that we did after he picked him, I pointed out the significant differences between these two. And in my opinion, we saw some of that play out at the second debate with Trump when he pretty much said that he disagreed with Pence and he hadn't discussed he hadn't discussed that particular issue with him before. And that's something that everybody that I've asked has never been done during the presidential debate for a candidate to pretty much openly say that he disappears disappears disagrees with his running mate and take it a step further and say we haven't even talked about that so i thought that was interesting we talked about hillary and her bill clinton liability with trump pence um my question is do you think that they would be at odds a lot to where it would play out in public because if for some reason trump won his presidency he's not a you know keep it behind the doors type of guy he he shoots from the hip he speaks from the cuff off the cuff 
he says what's on his mind. So he's not good at keeping things behind doors. So we know we heard the report that he offered John Kasich the VP nod. Kasich turned it down. They actually were going to their their uh their whole pitch to Kasich was you can be the VP. You will be running the show. I'll just be a figurehead, but all the policies would be ran through you, John Kasich, and he still turned it down. Now, he offered them that. I'm guessing he didn't offer Pence this same deal if he's going to come out here and openly disagree with him. So my question is, do you think he respects Pence a lot less than he did Kasich, or do you have a completely different take on this relationship between these two? I do think that Pence was being his second choice. He just didn't have the same options. It's just like anything else, right? You try to woo that first free agent and you give them the max deal with all the, you know, the best options or whatever it may have you. And then you go to your second choice and you give them like a good deal, but you know, you don't want to back up the truck completely because they're your second choice. It's like anything else. So I think that certainly Trump is so volatile. Anything could play out, which is exactly why Kasich didn't want, First of all, he didn't want the VP because that would have to have to run all the policies through you, and then you're still not getting much of the credit because you're not the president. Um, so I just think that, you know, he picked Pence because, you know, Pence is Pence is the kind of guy that he's never going to really probably ever be a candidate on his own to run. He'll probably never win the, be able to win the, the nomination on his own. And he likely wouldn't be a, a pick for vice president because he's very unpopular in Indiana, his own state. So I don't know that I think he took an opportunity to say, hey, I can be, you know, in the White House. And even though he probably disagrees with much of what Donald Trump says uh, as he's as he's come out and, and done, I think he took a chance. And, you know, uh, you know, like he, he went for the glory, so to speak. And Trump has no problem cutting him down, I think, because Trump doesn't probably respect him. I think you just made an allusion to that. He. You know, he sees him as a guy, to, a means to an end. Trump knew he had to pick a, a vice president. He knew he couldn't pick, uh, uh, you know, Chris Christie. Christie. Right. I was gonna, I was gonna say, you know, it's funny because I know a bunch of athletes are gonna say Doug Christie, nah, not Doug, <laughs> Steve Christie, and uh, Chris Christie. You know, all these Christies. Um, so he couldn't pick Christie, and Kasich didn't want it. So really, Pence is to me his third choice, and so. I don't think there's a lot of respect there. I think it's he's he's a guy that, like I said, he's in that position because you know he had to have a vice president, and you would see uh, probably the biggest cluster ever if he was elected because I think that they would disagree on a whole bunch of stuff, and Trump wouldn't have any problem throwing him under the bus if he felt like he was making a stupid decision or a stupid remark. And like you say, uh, Pence, I think it's safe to say wasn't even his second pick if you figure Christie was his first. And Kasich was either his second or third because Newt Gingrich's name was floating around. So I think it's probably at least a somewhat safe assumption that maybe not. Maybe you can't go as far as to say he doesn't respect Pence. But, you know, by him being his fourth or fifth choice, I guess he doesn't mind openly disagreeing with him. Uh, We talked about it. I mentioned it a few times during the show. The 13th. Well, which refers to uh, the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, is on Netflix now. It's getting a lot of um, getting a lot of discussion on social media and, and people at, at work. Um, it's a great documentary. I enjoyed it. I'm not going to give away any spoilers, but I will just tell you several subjects that it touches on. Is how we are the United States. We are um, one one out of four 
we're five percent of the uh, world population, yet we house twenty five percent of the world's prisoners. I mean, we we love locking people up. It talks about the whole Frank mentioned this a long time ago, the whole Southern strategy and how it started with Nixon. The Republican Party, as we know it today, was a completely different Republican Party before this Southern strategy. Uh, just think how we view the Democratic Party today, how all, a lot of black people vote for it. That's how the Republican Party was viewed before this Southern strategy. And it just talks about the steps from, um, you know, Nixon being uh, using the whole Southern strategy thing and law and order and how someone in his administration recently, I believe earlier this year, admitted that the war on drugs was about locking up black people. I mean, he said it plain as day. For any anybody that wants to disagree with that, it, the war on drugs is about locking up black people. Um, it talks about I thought this was uh, phenomenal, Frank. It talks about how the Democrats you know, lost the 1980, 84, 88 election to Reagan and H.W. Bush. You know, the Republican Party is this whole law and order thing. So the Democrats kind of had to get on board. And so that's how you get the whole Clinton thing with the three strikes law and uh, the crime bill that everyone is criticizing and the mandatory sentencing. So sentencing. So, you know, for black people and minorities, you got the double whammy. You already had the Republican Party that that was out here preaching law and order. Now you had the Democrats because they needed to win elections. Felt like they kind of had to move to the right a little bit on that issue. So it's like, which party can do we really turn to? Um, it talked about some things I've never heard of, like Alec, A-L-E-C company. I've seen these letters before. Folks, they are so influential in our political process. Uh, their co-founder even once, this is why me and Frank tell you to vote so much. Their co-founder once said, when voter turnout is down, it's good for us. It's good for conservatives. It's good for Republicans. It's good for those people that like laws, like, like law and mandatory sentencing. It's good for them. So one of the reasons, another reason we need to vote is when we turn out, it's a better representation of what this country really wants and the direction it wants to go with. They are also responsible for SB 1070, which is that controversial law in uh, Arizona where police were pretty much given permission to stop anyone who even illegal. They didn't even have to have any probable cause. Just if they look illegal, you get to stop them. The last point I want to make on this, Frank, your boy, my boy, you posted one of his videos on our Facebook page a while ago. Van Jones had to me, and I can't wait till you watch it. He had the quote of the documentary to me and that he was mentioning, you know, people say sometimes people say black people, where are where are our leaders? We need leadership. And he said, you know, you ran off all our leaders. We talked about Asada Shakur on the past episode. You talk. He basically said there isn't a black leader in American history that you can mention without also mentioning how they were investigated by the FBI. Anytime any black leader steps up, he's automatically deemed a criminal. We paint Martin Luther King in such rosy glasses when we look at him. But when during those days, Martin Luther King was investigated by the FBI. And I just thought that was so phenomenal. And he said, if you look at white leaders, you don't get the same scrutiny. You don't get the same criminalization of their leaders. It's a great documentary. I think it's about an hour and a half. Again, it's called the 13th. Um, I know you said you haven't seen it. You probably wanted to sh share a couple of words and, and thoughts on what you expect out of it. But uh, it's something that we really highly recommend. And I think you all should check it out. 
Yeah, I'm excited. I definitely want to check it out. I've just been haven't been had a chance to to take a look at it. But I think you mentioned most of everything that I, that you know, I, I, not having seen it, that I would want to look for. And I just I'm glad that this kind of stuff is coming out. You know, I'm glad that we reached a point where you know we we had the civil rights movement. I think for a long time after civil rights movement, we kind of were in place and we kind of were like oh, everything's fine. And then it wasn't actually until Barack Obama elected President Barack Obama that we started seeing the pushback. And I think that um, Lauren mentioned that she she talked about uh, President Obama getting elected was causing pushback. And so we're seeing the last vestiges, as she mentioned this almost word for word, the last vestige of the Southern strategy manifest itself in Donald Trump's campaign. And I think that's very powerful. And so when you put those that that type of dialogue together, along with these kind of type of documentaries and books like the new Jim Crow, like, that we are having uh, in the birth of a nation we, we we are we need to become the new generation the new voice through through our through our outlook through our outlets and our influence so that we can educate and let the people know what is going on in the world so we can have an enlightened moment to make a difference because that's really what happens like people don't understand that civil rights movement happened and every black person was not involved in the civil rights movement and every white person wasn't was was not in was not not involved so to speak so it's like we have to get this movement going so that people will be a part of whatever the next thing is to make a change and whoever wants to hear let him hear it and, and, and or her hear it and, and let's get involved let's get this thing going because i just feel like there's been something started and sparked in all of us since all this stuff happened. And I'm just glad to see that people are putting their thoughts and words together to create a movement to make a change. I just want to touch on something you said. I mentioned how Van Jones had like the quote of the documentary. I want to give you your props, man. To me, you've had the quote of this entire season of Politically Entertained that we've been doing. And that's pretty much that. You know, you need to vote in local elections just as, as much as uh, this presidential election. And I'm, I'm seeing a lot on social media of people saying they can't vote for Trump or Hillary, so they're not going to vote at all. I mean, that's your right. I, I really disagree. But at least go and vote for, you know, the senators, the House members, your local uh, politicians as well, state legislator, uh, if, if the mayor is on the ballot or whatever. If you want to ignore the presidential election, like I said, that's your right. But remember, all politics is local, as Erica Perkins says and as Frank says. You want to at least have a say so in that. So, again, if you want to sit out the presidential election, that's your choice. But you still, in my opinion, are obligated to show up November 8th and vote in all the other ballots that are on on the list. So please do that. That's what we encourage you to do. We try to give you as much information as possible on this show so you can make the best guess, I mean, the best uh, choice that you can. And, uh, yeah, show up November 8th. Uh, just want to thank everybody for listening. Don't forget you can subscribe, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Podbean, as well as go to Google Play, download the podcast app, and then download our show, Politically Entertaining. Also, like our Facebook page. Again, we're getting uh, much, much closer to the election, just about three weeks away from it. Make sure you're registered. I'm, I think it's probably too late to register if you're not, but definitely make sure you know where your polling place is. Early voting has begun, so if you can early vote, do that. That way you're not stuck in line for 10 hours on Election Day as well. Again, as Byron said, 
know who your local officials are, vote for them, even if you're dissatisfied with the presidential election. Uh, definitely know who you're voting for and check out the 13th because I need to check it out too. We all need to be understanding what's going on, what our history uh, has brought, has taken us so that we can understand where we're going. I think that's important for all of us. So again, we do this show for you guys, the listeners. We want to thank you all for listening and we'll see you guys soon on another episode of Politically Entertaining. Thank you for listening to Politically Entertaining. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes and visit politicallyentertaining.com for the latest in political news and updates. Thank you.